This is a Double J podcast. For copyright reasons, the music has been edited. To hear the full tracks, listen to The J Files, Thursday nights on Double J, or head to doublej.net.au and click on the track list at the bottom of each episode. Hey, it's Kaz Tran here. Welcome to The J Files, the podcast for people who love music. Each episode is like a quick music history lesson. We pick a different artist or band, we look at some of the most important moments in their career, and we celebrate their impact on music, all in less than 30 minutes. We also give you access to the Double J and Triple J archives, packed full of classic interviews. On this episode, it's alternative rock icons, Sonic Youth. A band that emerged from the New York underground in the early 80s with a thrilling adrenaline rush of driving, distorted, noisy rock that would change music forever. Sonic Youth took the abrasiveness and experimentation of the avant-garde music and art scene, the intensity of hardcore punk and their love of pop to pioneer their own sound. And it's safe to say a whole heap of bands wouldn't exist without them. Across three decades, 15 studio albums, countless singles, EPs, collaborations and live recordings, as well as forays into visual art, fashion and pop culture, their legacy remains unmatched. But they began with no such aspirations and no hint of the huge success that awaited them. In 1989, on the band's first Australian tour, Kim Gordon talked Triple J's Cassie Plate through Sonic Youth's humble and experimental beginnings. What was Sonic Youth born out of? What were their roots? Well, it was kind of, you know, we really started at the end of uh, No Wave. After that was pretty much over. Nothing was really happening in New York. You know, there was this this sort of nightclub atmosphere that was really boring. And uh, it just really probably started out of boredom. <laughs> you know, and just wanting to do something and creating something that we wanted to hear. Do you think it's because it had, uh, I suppose, a real originality that it's lasted this long? What sort of changes have you Um, gone through? I guess so. I think, um, you know, at first, because it was so eclectic and, we, you know, we really didn't know what we were doing. We weren't very deliberate about it at all. People didn't really like it. It wasn't, um, you know, a steady 4-4 kind of beat that had noise to it, I mean, or anything even like that. How would you describe it? I don't know. I think it was just, it was just like this textural kind of rhythmic uh, music that had, I mean, I I never really thought about it that much. You know, we we actually, we really thought we were writing um, songs, (laughs) pop songs. I mean, that's how, you know... I know where we were. <laughs> so it developed. In a way. We were just writing songs, and um, then you know you put out records and you start reading reviews, and people say, "Oh, it's drone, blah blah music," and you start thinking, "Well, <laughs> yeah, I guess it is." And but I think if we had had a, a sound that was very um, stylized in a certain way, uh, more accessible, I don't know if we would have lasted as long. We've just sort of naturally progressed the sound over the years, really. 
At the heart of Sonic Youth was the partnership in life and music of founding members Kim Gordon and Thurston Moore. Kim had moved from LA to New York to pursue visual art, while Thurston was drawn to the city by the post-punk and no-wave scene. That scene brought them together and they played in various bands. There was a gig under the name of Red Milk and a couple of shows as the Arcadians. And eventually, in mid-1981, they became Sonic Youth. Guitarist and songwriter Lee Ronaldo joined soon after, and over the decades there'd be other members, including longtime drummer Steve Shelley and musician and producer Jim O'Rourke too. Playing live was essential to the band figuring out their sound. Here's more of that 1989 chat with Kim Gordon. Do you like, do you like performing itself and playing? Yeah, I like performing a lot. I think that's why I continue to do it. Just maybe one out of five gigs is really, you know, something special where everyone kind of agrees that it was a good, you know, gig, the sound was good. And it just kind of is very uplifting when that happens. And it's, it's sort of addicting. You know, there's nothing else that really replicates that. You're a real live band. You, you come across in a totally different way live. It doesn't seem possible to capture that sound on record. Yeah, I don't really think it is. I mean, you know, people always say, well, your records really suck in a way next to live. It's just so different. The physicality of it and everything is, the way that affects the sound is, it's kind of frustrating in a way, but, you know, it's just a different kind of listening experience. In the mid to late 80s, Sonic Youth hit a creative streak and found that magic balance of experimentation and traditional melodic pop that we all fell in love with. In 2021, Thurston Moore reflected on the making of their third album, 1986's Evol, and the records that followed. I think it's sort of, it was the beginning of us really focusing on like the song as something that could be that can have this really sort of distinct melodic content, you know, and not have to sort of um, be so involved with destruction. <laughs> I think it was a sweeter record. It was, like, it was us sort of getting into maybe, I think we were just sort of allowing ourselves to sort of mature with ourselves as a band, and that record sort of was showing it in a way. Like, I think we were, we were employing sort of guitar skills that maybe didn't exist, you know, three years prior. I always felt like um, there was more of a, of, of a pop aesthetic that sort of came in at that time that maybe wasn't really um, uh, available to us because of our, um, our our technique wasn't really sort of geared up for it. And I think by the time we got to that kind of songwriting, that muscle was sort of coming into play. And I think it was fascinating for us to sort of employ more of this kind of um, accessible kind of pop sound, and, but still using these kind of guitars. In a way, it was just like, it was kind of going straighter, and but by going straighter, it was like, for us, was like being experimental. You know, it's sort of like when they, it's sort of like when they said like Hendrix would take drugs to get straight. <laughs> it was kind of like that. <laughs> Thank you. 
1988 was an election year in the US, and as George Bush Sr. campaigned for the presidency, Sonic Youth recorded and released their fifth album, Daydream Nation. Sonic Youth didn't do protest songs. Their music was never overtly political, but the socio-political climate they found themselves in seeped into everything they did. The 90s were approaching, grunge was on the way, and Sonic Youth was foreshadowing a new decade defined by an explosive fury and angst. In 1993, while on tour across Australia with a big day out, Thurston and Lee Ronaldo dropped by Triple J's Three Hours of Power with Francis Leach who asked them if they'd felt compelled to be more political on Daydream Nation. Um, I don't think we felt it was necessary. I mean, we always sort of had a, a political concern, but um, to do it in song is always kind of tricky. You don't want to really want to exploit your own kind of uh, political correctness, you know, just to make a, a cool song. <laughs> so it's kind of tricky. It's just interesting that, it was recorded in an election year in America in 1988, of course, which George Bush won. But it just seemed from that moment onwards, there's been an explosion in youth culture worldwide, which has seen, uh, you know, the proliferation of really good grunging guitar bands who are pushing things forward and, and also making an impact on the charts. Do you think that in a way that a song like Teenage Riot might have helped to shake the apathy of some people then? Possible. I mean, the song was about the apathetic teenager and it was about kind of the, the slacker individual that exists in America in the face of just sort of like a right-wing takeover of, of the society and somebody who was intelligent yet kind of helpless. That element's still around. That element still States. exists. And it's great seeing now, like years later, when people are more sort of involved and able to vote, et cetera, et cetera, you know, voting George Bush out of office, which was quite a coup in a way. Daydream Nation pushed the band further towards the mainstream, and in 1990, they'd arrived. Sonic Youth's major label debut and sixth album, Goo, would go on to be their best-selling record. Hardcore fans accused them of selling out but the band insisted their new label, Geffen, wasn't forcing them to compromise their art. Goo was more accessible than their previous releases, but stayed true to the sonic youth spirit of experimentation, noise, and the marriage of the pop world with the underground. Alongside epic opener Dirty Boots and Cool Thing, which featured Chuck D, the album featured an unexpected homage to The Carpenters. In a 1993 interview with Triple J's Richard Kingsmill, Kim Gordon talked about the influence of the easy-listening, soft-rock sibling duo. I don't know, I really got into the Carpenters very late. <laughs> I remember at the time when they, they came out, that was like music that your parents yeah, it wasn't cool wanted to you like to them. listen to, you know, that they thought that should be acceptable rock, and no one li really listened to them because their image was so establishment. So she has such an amazing voice, and if you listen to these, the lyrics of these songs that she didn't write, yet it sounds like she really made them her own, also considering in retrospect what her life was like and, and how pretty isolated. 
What about the song Tunic? The Sonic Youth song Tunic? Yeah, that was uh, about Karen. Well, it was sort of written from the respect perspective of being Karen, like, and um, making her free now that she's in heaven. You know, she was such a victim. In what way was she a victim? You know, she had, I mean, a lot of women feel like they have no control over their life, and the only control they have is the control over their bodies. And one thing, that's what one thing they can do is they can shape it, they can dye it, they, you know. And she seemed like her life was totally dominated by her parents and her brother. And, um, you know, actually a lot of teenage girls who suffer from anorexia, you know, it happens when they're teenagers, and... Eating is always such a big part of the family, and eating together, and so I think it's a way of rebelling for a lot of some girls. Did you not ever? Eating. Did you ever experience anything along those I lines? I sort of did. I mean, not so much because I wanted to be skinny, but for me, it was it was like a because my parents were so into food. <laughs> And it was a way of, you know, not eating dinner with my parents or just saying, no, I'm not hungry. It was kind of, I don't know, for some reason that was one of my ways of rebelling. Of rebelling. The Carpenters were a recurring theme. In 94, alongside a handful of other alternative rock bands, Sonic Youth appeared on the tribute album If I Were a Carpenter. Although Richard Carpenter later said he didn't care for their version of Superstar. Don't you remember you told me you Early Madonna was another influence on the band. As part of a short-lived sideband called Chicone Youth, they released 1988's The Whitey Album, which included this cover of Into the Groove. Sonic Youth was always upfront about their love of pop music, but they loved a lot of music, regardless of genre, as Richard Kingsmill discovered when he spoke to Thurston and Lee in 1998. Uh, my favorite singers of all time would be, I really, um, well, Billie Holiday, I think would be one of them. If I go to church on Sunday. Uh, Lydia Lunch would be another one. Uh, I like Jay Maskus's singing from Dinosaur. I've always liked uh, Johnny Thunder's singing. Yeah. As well as David Johansson's uh, early on there. Um, yeah, I always I liked Iggy's singing on his first few records. Captain Beefheart. Muddy Waters. Uh-huh. I don't want you cook my brain. Um, Miriam Akiba. She was a great singer. Uh-huh. Um, you know, Bob Dylan. What do you, do you reckon, is there a line here? Is there, I mean... Well, no. I mean, these are. I'm thinking it's of singers ongoing. that I I really dig, and uh, you know, it's it's pretty easy. You know, Patti Smith uh, is pretty, you know, pretty good. Do you 
you like the sound of your own voice? Not especially. You know, I, I don't really have a, re- a really good sense of pitch, and that always bothers me because I can't really um, sort of hit what I would like to hit what I hear inside harmonically. It doesn't really come out as such, and so therefore it's really frustrating and kind of annoying. Do you try a lot in the studio to try to get it to the sound in your head? Yeah, but I, I eventually just sort of pick up the mic stand and throw it through the studio window and then... <laughs> then uh, go home and get drunk and pass out <laughs> a huge exaggeration Lee or is that pretty much how you see it too that's definitely how I see it you're ducking at the time to get out of the way of the mic, mic stand Sunday comes alone by the late 90s Sonic Youth were huge it had a string of successes on records like Dirty, Experimental, Jet Set, Trash and No Star and Washing Machine. With the money they made on big tours like Lollapalooza in 95, they built their own studio where they made their 10th album, A Thousand Leaves. Here's more of that chat with Richard Kingsmill in 98. Let's talk about the latest album from Sonic Youth. Uh, do you reckon this is, at the moment in your career, is this, is this a branch or is this still the trunk of what Sonic Youth is all about, this latest album? <laughs> It's just it's just the new record, you know. I don't. I I mean, I can't describe it as anything else. But I mean, all our, it's just a. Um, it's definitely not a an ending or a beginning or anything like that. I, I really feel that it's like a again more just this uh, continuing thing. And You're sick of analyzing this, aren't you? It's a window oh, on the no, flow. I I, we never analyze. I mean, I like to sort of see analysis of our, our recordings when they come out and people start getting involved with that and. You know, um, people who listen to us will come up to us, you know, at the concerts and stuff, and sort of uh, give us their ideas of what's going on. It's it's always it's always really interesting, and you know, yeah, hear how people illustrate what you do. Funny as well. Yeah, it can be. Yeah. And sometimes it can be completely off-putting because it's like, no, no, we have no interest in that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like when we were singing Death Valley '69, people thought like, oh, you're really into sort of like you know Manson and kind of uh, this this kind of nefarious uh, thing is like no no we were just sort of this commentary on American landscape you know and stuff and, and uh, has that happened much throughout your career that people get had, the wrong idea yeah that you've had a lot of those comments yeah, it, I, that happens you know I, for a long period I think people thought we were just this weird New York band that sort of you know did drugs and some Soho loft and played this weird music and then I think now people finally realize that we're the antithesis of that in a way and uh, so, um, although the mystique must be nice to sort of hide behind sometimes to let the imagination yeah, was, run wild in the in the audiences. Right. I was kind of into it. I mean, a lot of people I meet who listen to us when they were younger and now they sort of know, you know, the story. They think like they're they said their whole impression of us was we were these weird New York freaks, you know. And then, you know, so that was it's kind of this. I had that image of a lot of people who I listened to musically when I was a teenager, and I actually got to meet a lot of these people later on in life. And, and they were always, for the most part, completely different in personality than I would have thought. A lot straighter and a lot sort of more... Just, just, yeah, more, yeah, more just real in a way. And kind of off, just kind of off-putting in that sense. It's like, well, it's not as romantic Mm. to be around you as I thought it would be. (laughs) (laughs) On top of their music, it was that mystique they channeled that so many of us fell in love with. 
Over the course of their three-decade career, the effortless cool of those so-called weird New York freaks never waned. But in 2011 came the announcement of their breakup, sparked by the end of Kim and Thurston's marriage. And that was it. In 2021, a decade on from the breakup, Double J's Karen Ling asked Thurston if he thought they'd ever get back together. No, I don't foresee that happening. Hmm. I think it's, you know, in a very real way, I feel like that group really, really ran its course and anything else would would just be sort of this nostalgic kind of celebratory sort of reunion thing. But I'm not, that to me, I'm not really interested in doing. Hmm. So, you know, it's just the way it is. By the time we did our last recording, The Eternal, I felt like we had really, you know, run a quite a, a life together, you know, as that band. And I felt like that, that particular record really um, was a totally fine sort of send off, if not a wrap up. So I don't, it's not like I, I, um, I feel like there was anything left undone with that group. Yeah. Sonic Youth might be no more, but they've left us with a lifetime of incredible music to explore. On top of their huge back catalogue of albums and EPs, there's a trove of more experimental releases from their SYR label, movie soundtracks and collabs. They've also continued to share previously unreleased live recordings online. The J Files is a Double J podcast. Make sure you like, follow and share. Our producer is Caitlin Nienaber with production support from Gab Burke, Sam Wicks and Phoebe Bennett. Theme music is by Art vs. Science. You can check out Double J anytime on the Triple J app or at doublej.net.au. I'm Kaz Tran. Thanks for listening.